Would you guys please actually stand in reverence for reading the Holy Scriptures? We're going to be reading from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, my name's Cameron. It's great to be with you. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, this is a week three of our kind of three-week fall vision series, which, you know, churches do vision series uh, semi-regularly, maybe twice a year is pretty normal. And uh, in, in one sense, this is another one of those. In another sense, there's just been a real, um, I think, kind of collective realization amongst a lot of people that are part of this community, at least people that have been around for more than a few months, um, that, that this feels like kind of a crucial time to recommit to one another. We, you know, if you don't know, the first two years plus of our church have all been under the shade of the pandemic. We, uh, we started March 1st, 2020, and uh, we had two worship gatherings before everything shut down. And so the, the entire story of this church has been one of really, I would say, God's faithfulness um, amidst this crazy thing that very well could have just ended this thing <laughs> a month or so in. We could have just packed it up and said, well, that was a fun little experiment. Uh, but God's been faithful. But nonetheless... Over the last two, two and a half years, um, there have been fits and starts, and it just felt like there, I've heard from so many people that there was this sense that like something's, something's changing, and, and, and it, for general reasons and maybe ethereal reasons, and then even down to the fact that our staff is kind of rebooting, um, and all kinds of reasons, it just feels like now is a time for us to kind of recommit to one another, reassess like what are some of the core things that we are about as a community, and then really, really a call to move forward together into whatever God has for us next. Um, so all that said, I want to start with this, this idea for today to tee up this kind of third, third idea and final idea in this series, which is this. You share what you love. And if you've, if you've spent any time with me, uh, you know, when I'm not up here, I, actually, honestly, sometimes when I am up here, you know that, like, my, my loves for, like, esoteric TV shows and movies will come out all the time. You'll, I actually, poor Krista Fowles yesterday at the park. Where's Krista? I saw her walking around. There she is. She had, Susanna, literally, my wife set a timer for how long I could talk about this TV show, Joe Para Talks With You, uh, because I was so excited about it. She's like, you have one minute. You can talk to Krista for one minute about this television show camera. It doesn't have to be about TV or film or whatever. Um, when we are fired up about something, when we are fired up about something, the natural course of things is to want to share it, is to want to bring other people into the joy that you're receiving from it, whatever it is. I love this quote where C.S. Lewis kind of unpacks this idea in his great short little book called Reflections on the Psalms. Here, listen to Lewis on this. The chapter's on praise, but listen, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's, 
it, it is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and to not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with, parentheses, the perfect hearer died a year ago. This is so even when our expressions are inadequate, as of course they usually are. But how if one could really and fully praise even such things to perfection, to utterly get out in poetry or music or paint the upsurge of appreciation which almost bursts you, then indeed the object would be fully appreciated and our delight would have attained perfect development. The worthier the object, the more intense the delight would be. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about God as the ultimate object of praise, the one that our language could never exhaust. So it's, if it's true of a TV show, it's certainly true of God, or at least it should be. That's the idea. We're going to come back to that a couple of times as we move forward. But on that note, let's, let's just pray for a moment. Let's pray for the Spirit of God to, to join us here. Father, we love you. We, we just announce again, it's, it's a privilege to be together. Lord, even in just recounting that little story of, of, of the, the birth of our church, Lord, we, we know what it's like to not be able to gather in this building, Lord. To be, to be distant, to be separated. We thank you for, for the fact that we can be here now. Um, for those uh, that, are, that are still watching at home who are unable to be here, Lord, we pray that you would just, just comfort them, help them feel a sense of belonging here amongst this community as well. Um, but Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather, to sing together, to come under your word together, to serve one another, to do all the things that happen here, Lord. And Father, we, we, again, as we always do, we acknowledge your spirit is within us. Every person in this room who, who's trusted Jesus has, has, has turned into a home, a temple of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and we just acknowledge the craziness of that, the immensity of that, the glory of that. And we say, Lord, make your presence known in us. We know you're here, but we want to encounter and experience you in fresh ways, in powerful ways, Lord. Give us all of yourself that, that you will. And guide us this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said, um, this series was, was kind of birthed out of the idea of the sense that we needed a bit of a, a reboot and a restart. Uh, whether we wanted it or not, it was happening. It was happening. But as well, one of the things we talked about two weeks ago was that over this, these pandemic years, we've, been, we've become conditioned to see things like distance and separation and aloneness as virtuous. And we can disclaim that. There are good reasons for all these things, and, and if, you know, I, I, tr I trust you take my meaning here. But, but nonetheless, the effect on the human soul of for, for a year plus, two years plus of saying, it is not good for me to be around people is really devastating. It's really devastating. It upends all kinds of things that are crucial to thriving. And, and what, we, what we said was that there, there was possibly for many of us, certainly for me, I'll just speak for myself, for me, for Cameron, there was a sense where I shifted from pursuing kind of a thriving communal life with this church to a merely surviving communal life. 
Like, what's, what, what can we do to make sure this, these relationships don't completely fall apart? But that's it. That's it. Um, we want to move. We want to move. We want to call our community to move from, from that survival mentality to, to, to a vision, once again, of flourishing. Flourishing together from, from predominantly a, a view of, of kind of safety and hunkering down to, to mutual sacrifice on behalf of one another. From caution to boldness. From casual to committed. And so, so this series specifically has been about reclaiming kind of three central identities that we find in the scriptures that Jesus gives to his disciples and reclaiming them with that boldness, with that full-heartedness. Identities that I think we've been formed away from by the events of the last two years. So we started with family. And that was the call to investment, to presence, to consistency, to seizing the opportunities that we have uniquely as this church in this time, in this place, at this size, in this building, in this city, and on and on and on. What are the opportunities we have to kind of build the kind of community and individual relationships with one another that Jesus envisioned for his church? Which if you read, if you read the New Testament, is a massive vision, a beautiful vision. And then last week, we, we talked about the identity as learners, learners, the call to pursuing maturity in Jesus, spiritual formation, sanctification, however you want to put it, pursuing connection with God together, of course, and individually, and individually through specifically the, the spiritual disciplines that have, have formed the church over the millennia. And then finally, um, we now turn to a third identity, which I would just put simply as witnesses. Witnesses. So family, learners, and witnesses. And by witnesses, here's what we mean. We mean those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that he is real, and that he is worth sharing. It's simply those people who recognize those things, then sharing that good news of what God has done in Jesus. And it's an, important, it's an important identity to reclaim because if you're like me, at least at the height of the pandemic, it, like, just like making space for community in general, we talked about the fact that there was this weird thing. I don't know if you experienced it. I certainly did where when, when things were, were, were really intense and I was like, ah, I'm going to spend time with someone. I've counted the cost, you know, whatever. I want to be careful. You know, I want to take their health into account. What, am I going to be seeing anyone vulnerable? All those things, of course. I said, okay, we're going to spend time with someone in person. Like, the fear of, like, sharing that with someone. You guys remember that experience. Like, ooh, I can't let my coworkers or my friends or my family know that I've, like, interacted with another human because it's, it's irresponsible or it's threatening or whatever. And honestly, there, I think, believe there were seasons where there was a time and a place for that. But again, again, you cannot fool yourself into thinking that that does not have long-term impact on how you view relationships, how you view community. And the same... The same dynamic, I think, has been in place when it comes to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Summer 2020, many of us were probably tempted to just be like, what do I have to say at all to this world? Like grappling with incredible racial injustice and this pandemic and who knows what else and social isolation and mental health issues and all this stuff. It's like, do I have anything to say? Maybe I should just sit the next few plays out, you know? Um, Maybe there's a place for that too. Coming to the limits of what, of what you know and what you can do, that's a good thing. Humility is good. But this isn't about the limits of what you and I know. This is about proclaiming the God of the universe who has come to seek and save the lost, you know? 
This is about proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This is about ordering our lives around him. This is about becoming bold in our witness. And and I I believe that even that became tinged with a hint of shame for many of us. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. So maybe that's you, maybe it's not. If it is you, that's what this morning is about. Just naming that. Just naming that and calling us out of that. Calling us out of that. And of course, that'll be a process coming out of that. So, Annie already read 1 Peter 2 for us. We can put it up here. Um, It's a beautiful passage. 1 Peter's an amazing book. I just coincidentally discovered uh, Door of Hope Southeast has been working through 1 Peter over the last uh, month or two as well. So that's cool. Cool little synergy there. Um, But in this passage, I think we, we get three really key ideas about what it means to live as witnesses. The first is this. The first is this, is that Peter is, is calling these Christians that he's writing to to understand themselves as a number of things, but specifically with this identity as a royal priesthood. Um, so verse 9, says, But you're a chosen race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that's a lot of images there, four different images for our life together. And they're all right and true and good. And that parallels what we've been talking about in the family idea. But you have to remember, the Christian life is most often addressed in communal terms. Most of the the epistles, they're writing to a collective you, a plural you. These commands are for us as a community together, not as individual isolated folks. Um, And here it is again, more communal language. We have the image of a chosen. You could read that as selected or elected race of people that God is building. Uh, the image of a royal priesthood, we could say kingly mediators, uh, a holy or set-apart nation, um, and a people for his own possession, emphasizing just his unique, close relationship to this people. And the one I want to focus on today is this image of a royal priesthood, and I think, I think its themes kind of carry through the rest of this passage. Um, royal clues us in that, that God views his people as sharing in the royal splendor of his kingdom. Okay, hear this. Jesus is king, and you are not. I am not. None of us are the king. Jesus is the king. But nonetheless, you are made part. When In Christ, you are made part of the royal family. You're not like the jester who gets brought in to like, be made fun of or something. You're not someone outside. You're not, you're not fundamentally part of some rival kingdom. No, the people of God that he's purchased in Christ, they have a dignified, valued, honored position in the kingdom of God. Heirs, children. That's the kind of language the New Testament uses. So that's royal. But priesthood, priesthood, that's getting at the idea of, of the people who mediate between God and other people. That's an interesting idea. They're they're the designated go-betweens and reconcilers appointed by God. So this idea is all over the scripture. In Eden, Adam and Eve were given priest-like functions as they helped administer God's rule over the creation. You could rightly think of Adam and Eve as the first priests. And then again, when when the nation of Israel was established after Exodus, God appointed formal priests to mediate between himself and the rest of the people. These were the guys who worked in the temple, who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, um, and so on and so forth. But not just, not just the priests themselves, but, but in the Old Testament, w- when God speaks of Israel, he often speaks of them as a, a, a priesthood, a, a national priesthood, a nation of priests, 
a priestly nation, that collectively as a whole. Now hear this. What that means is that Israel's relationship to God was not meant to just stop with them. It wasn't that God chose them just because those are the only people God was interested in having a relationship with. No, if it was a, a priestly nation, that meant, yes, they are more than anything to prioritize their own relationship with God. But that was meant to be a sign and an invitation to the surrounding nations to come and experience and worship and belong to this God as well. How did they do? It's a checkered history there, but that was the goal. You read it time and time again. And then Jesus, of course, Jesus, of course, was the great high priest, the ultimate high priest who fulfilled these roles in ways that were radically unthinkable. How did Jesus become priest? How did he mediate between God and people? He was God come into human flesh, the God man. He literally was God become man to make his home among us, to actually be, not just administer a sacrifice, but to be the perfect final sacrifice. And to make ultimate reconciliation between God and, and his people possible. So Jesus is the, the climax of this theme. But there's a final twist, even after Jesus, even after Jesus ascends to heaven, that Jesus gives his new people, the church, once again, the privilege of being his priests, this time indwelt and empowered by his Holy Spirit, indwelt and empowered by his Holy Spirit to go out and share the message of reconciliation between God and humanity that Jesus accomplished. So, a little biblical theology there, but to become priests, at least in part, is to become witnesses of the resurrected Jesus to those who don't know him. That's what it means. It's to be those ministers of reconciliation. Say, Jesus has done everything to bring wayward people and this perfect God together. There's nothing left to be done. And this invitation is for any and everyone who will receive it without distinction. Come and see that the Lord is good and loving and beautiful and true and on and on and on. So we could, at least from one angle, view priests and witnesses as, as the same thing. We are his representatives. We are those who have experienced his goodness. We've experienced the fact that Jesus is alive, that he offers forgiveness and hope that we desperately need, that he changes lives, that he alone has the answer to the dilemmas and the devastations of this world, that he is better than can be imagined, and that his loving arms are wide open to all. Door of Hope Northeast. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are part of this royal priesthood. You are part of this royal priesthood. You are his witnesses. This is your identity. It's our identity. So that's first. That's our identity. As witnesses, as priests. Movement two. What do these priests do? What do we do with this identity? What, what flows out of understanding ourselves that way? Now, what do we do? Well, we read on. Second part of verse 9. That, here's the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, dot, dot, dot. We'll finish that thought here in a minute. So we see two main activities here that flow out of this identity as witnesses or priests. It's proclaiming, proclaiming in word and in deed. You see those there? Proclaiming in word and in deed. Proclaiming in word is the first. Peter says we are to proclaim. That word just means to tell out, to tell out, to be bold, to share, to tell out the excellencies of God. What are excellencies? Nobody uses that word anymore, excellencies. Right? It's excellence of character. It's his virtue. It's his goodness. It's his traits worth celebrating, which are all of his traits. And there's so much we could say here, but, but Peter then emphasizes the glory of salvation, the, these things that he has done to save his people, this one who has called you out of darkness into light, the one who, who, who made you who were not a people now a singular people, those who had not received mercy, those who have received mercy. The idea is that we become proclaimers, truth-tellers, forth-tellers of what we've received it's so simple when you think about it. It's hard. It's, it's not impossible, but it's really hard to dispute someone's story. If your life has been radically changed by Jesus, it just is what it is. And people can say, well, it you know, may have just been some psychological shift you experienced, and you're sort of attributing that to Jesus. Where, yeah, people can, people can disagree, and they can pick it apart. But if you say, I was in darkness, and now I'm in light. My life was this way, and now it's this way. I had no hope, no peace, no joy, and now I have these things. I was lost, now I'm found. I had never experienced love before, and now I have by the God of the universe. If that's actually true of you, you can share that. You can share that, and that's powerful. You can proclaim what you've received, and it is hard to dispute someone's story. So the, the call is to proclaim first in word, to, to tell out, to use your words to tell the amazing things that Christ has done, that God has done in Christ. And I would just say this, a lack of seriousness about witnessing, about evangelism, if you want to use that term, it very likely reveals a deficient heart in at least two areas, and I'm talking to myself here. We'll talk about the second area here in a few minutes, but the first is this. If you're reticent to share, to proclaim the excellencies of our God, to evangelize, to share the good news, it could be that we just don't love God enough to share. And that's, that's kind of harsh. I'm, I'm pointing that first at myself. It could be, not necessarily, but it could be that we just don't love God enough to share. We don't genuinely see his glory, his excellencies, his beauty, his goodness, his grace as it really is. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but there are parts of you that still wonder if he's actually really good in this area or that area. And that keeps you from wanting to full-heartedly share who he is and what he's done with other people. Could be a number of reasons that we don't. Maybe you haven't truly grasped all that he's done for you. Maybe it's become old hat, old news, boring, whatever. But, but there's certainly a, a potential here that on one side of this equation, if we're not sharing, it might just be we don't think we have anything worth sharing. Who cares? What's the point of this? If that's you, 
today is a great time to confess that to him. And you know what? If you confess that to him, Lord, there may be some, way, some sense in which I just don't, I just don't think you're worth sharing. You know what he'll say back to you? Not audibly, I assume, probably. You know what his response is? You know, the heart posture of our God is grace, forgiveness, mercy, love. He's so, he's so good. You can tell him that. Lord, this is where I'm at. Confess it. Ask him to change you. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to produce a bigger picture in your heart and your mind of who he is and how worthy he is that you'd be excited to share, that it wouldn't feel like this guilt-inducing burden. Yeah, I know I should be sharing this stuff, but I actually don't really want to. So this burning desire that I know what I have is so good and so beautiful and so valuable that I cannot help but share it. Confess that to him. Receive his mercy in those things and ask him to change you. See what happens. That's a bold prayer to pray. See what happens. So proclaiming in word, but there's also, there's also in here a, 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 a complementary element to this, which is proclaiming in deed. You know, that's, we see that in verse 11 especially. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, we'll pause there again. Peter's point is, you don't belong to this world. So don't act like it. Act as though you belong to the world, to the kingdom, to the king that you actually do. This is very much in step with what we talked about last week, so we'll be quicker on this, but faithful witness necessarily involves our whole selves. You know this. This isn't like the misattributed quote supposedly from uh, St. Francis of Assisi. You've heard this. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. There's something in there that's kind of cool, but it fundamentally misses the point because words are indispensable to the proclamation of the gospel because the gospel is news. It's news. It's the news of what Jesus has done. But words without deeds can so easily, you, you know this, you've seen this, probably in yourself, Words without deeds ring hollow, insincere, half-hearted, hypocritical, strange, and powerless. Words without deeds, insincere, half-hearted, hypocritical, strange, powerless. But spirit-enabled word and deed proclamation, bold gospel clarity accompanied with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit. That is a powerful combination, friends. It's a totally different thing than hypocritical to, hypocritically talking about Jesus and the, living the rest of your life as though he did not walk out of the tomb and he is not reigning. So we proclaim indeed as well. For Peter, these things are inseparable. They're inseparable. We proclaim his excellencies in word and we, we back it up with a proclamation through our actions, our actual transformation as we talked about last week. Now, for a little application here, some of us, as we talked about, as we talked about the gifts of the Spirit, some of us in this room, not myself, I don't believe, are especially gifted in these things. Like evangelism, gift of evangelism. Paul specifically mentions that in Ephesians 4. Some are gifted at evangelism. It's just, it just comes naturally, easily. You, you're confident in it. And that's awesome. That's amazing. 
Um, if that's you, we probably need your help to help lead us as a church into these things more fully. We need to find who you are and, and, and blow some wind in your sails and, and leverage your energy and your passion and your skill to become better as a whole. But, but, um, you don't have to be as gifted or as effective as anyone else. You just have to be faithful with the opportunities that you have. That's it. It, it, when you start looking to the person to your left, your right, and say, well, that person's got seminary education. Oh, well, that person's been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Oh, that person seems just obviously gifted at this, or that person's so charismatic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God's made you exactly as you are in his will, in his goodness, in his design. You don't have to be this person or that person. You just have to be faithful with who you are and the opportunities that you've been given. Just real briefly, I, I have four simple ideas as you're going about your relationship for, for, for faithful witness. The first is this, just be prayerful. Are there people that you're praying for that don't know the Lord, that they would come to know the Lord? Is there anybody? You have, like, have that written down somewhere. I'm going to pray regularly that this person would come to know Jesus, that Jesus would save them, that Jesus would reveal himself to them. Just pray. Just pray. Pray for 50 years for that person. See what happens. See what kind of opportunities come. See the way, A, it shapes you in your interactions with them. It produces boldness in you to share and a greater love for that person, sensitivity towards that person. But then, B, see if God just supernaturally answers that prayer. If he gives you or someone else the opportunity to, to lead that person into a loving relationship with God. Be prayerful. Second thing I would just say is just be curious. I think, I think faithful witness just starts not with standing on, in your pulpit or, or on the side of the street or whatever and, and barking out things, but asking questions. Hey, who are you? What are you into? What are the deepest desires of your heart? What do you believe? What, what are you excited about? What, what are your passions? What gives meaning to your life? Are you religious? Do you have a religious background? Oh, you used to be a part of a church. Why aren't you anymore? Man, these just, just, cur just basic human decency and curiosity about someone. Just start there. Ask good questions. And as those relationships develop, just be responsive. Odds are, if this person at all is, <laughs> is like a kind and empathetic and compassionate person, they are going to ask you the same things. What about you? Are you religious? You say, no, I have a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. <laughs> you can get real annoying about your little distinctions there. Um, but yeah, answer. Answer. What does, what does drive you? What does give your life meaning? What are your greatest hopes? What are your greatest fears? Where are your deepest joys? Sometimes in answering honestly, you'll go, oh, I just gave the truthful answer, but it's not the answer that I hoped I would give. That's okay too. Repent, confess. But be responsive. And then finally, just again, prayerfully be bold. Be bold. Recognize that, that, that sharing the good news of Jesus um, Yes, it's scary. Yes, it can make you feel silly. It can make you feel stupid. It can make you feel offensive. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Because God is worth it. Because your neighbor is worth it. So just be bold. Ask for the Spirit's help to be bold.
That's just some thoughts on individual application, but there's also communal application. I, we've, br- we've brought up this verse before, but John 13, 34 through 35, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. He's talking to his disciples here. By this, listen to this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this ties us right back into two weeks ago, this whole family idea. It's not just arbitrary. It's not just for for feel good or whatever. The way in which we actually function as the family of God here in flesh in Portland, in Northeast Portland, right here in 2022, it communicates something about the reality, the actual existence of Jesus. It communicates whether or not we are his disciples, and if we're his disciples, there must be someone who is discipling us, the king of the world, Jesus. So we apply this together. In our own love for one another, our own one-anothering, we actually bear witness to the outside world about who Jesus is and what he's like. On that note, too, I would just say, sometimes inviting people into a loving community is less threatening and leverages the gifts of the group and gives people a chance to see what Jesus is really up to in our midst. There's something really powerful about just having like your, your faith family, having a barbecue and saying, hey, I want my neighbor to come into this and just experience the love and the warmth here and see what that does. Some people would find, you know, you know, going to a small group, a community group or something, a more safe and hospitable place. Some people would be like, oh, that's really threatening and weird. I don't want to do that. But maybe they'd feel more comfortable coming in here or maybe they'd just be coming to, you know, Uh, the horse brass down on Belmont or whatever and hanging out with you and your friends from church. But leverage the community. Leverage the community in these things. There's a communal application to be present with one another, not just in in and of itself, but that we might more effectively witness to those who are around us. And I would say that a third thing is institutional application, which sounds about like the most boring phrase that's ever come out of my mouth. Um, Here's what I mean. There's individual call to witness, there's communal call to witness, and then I just want to let you know about the things as an institution, like formalized structures we have here at this church. Um, Some of you may have heard on the podcast, we're going to talk about it more on a Sunday soon, but um, gosh, it's been over a year, the elders at Door of Hope Northeast, we decided to support a church plant in uh, Boise, Idaho. Uh, Some of you remember John Barry and Jesse Van Hoogen. Jesse used to be our kids coordinator, Um, but I've... For years, I've known that their hope was to go and plant a church in Boise, and uh, they met with our elders a few times. We kind of went through a process, and we said, yes, we think this is good, trustworthy gospel work. And so a small, but a portion of our giving every month goes to support Boise Gospel Church, and we're going to be talking more more and more about that moving forward. We are committed to church planting around here. Even even if we have, you know, limited resources, we think think if we don't start now, we're never going to start at all. Um, so we're starting now. More than that, uh, many of you know Sean. I won't say his last name because it's sensitive information, but our friend Sean serving in the Middle East. Uh, we're due for an update. Actually, as I believe it, sometimes he's live streaming us. He might, te- he might text me. This, Sean, if you're listening, I give you permission to text me right now. In fact, I'm going to turn my phone off silent. This will be awesome. But Sean, Sean is in the Middle East, and um, he is actively working with a team uh, to see a church planting movement and disciple making movement birthed 
out of this, this town, this city that he's working at in the, in the Middle East. And uh, what I was going to say is he's, he's working on like a letter. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if you wrote like a letter to Door of Hope Northeast as your sending church, like Paul would write to the Philippians or whatever? He was like, yeah, that's awesome. So we're going to read a letter from Sean here soon um, to give you an update on his ministry because I know it's been a while. Um, but we're committed to supporting these, these avenues and more. We've got the Door of Hope family of churches. And whatever twists and turns this takes over the years, just know like we are committed here at Northeast to seeing more gospel-centered churches planted in the city of Portland. And we know that it will be costly. It will be costly to this community. It will be costly to um, us relationally as we send people out to do that. But we just think it's worth it. We think smaller, community-focused churches around the city have an incredible chance to create vibrant, Jesus-loving families um, around our city, and so we are, we're dead set on that. I think probably the last two years have set us back on that goal, but that's okay. We're playing the long game here. It doesn't have to be next week, next month, next year that we start this, but we're going to be moving towards it now in whatever ways we can. Right now, it just involves each month setting aside money from our budget. It's just growing and growing and growing, and one day we're going to be able to pull the trigger and bless church planting team with, with something that um, would not have been there otherwise if we hadn't started planning for it now. So there you go. There's a few things just institutionally that we're, we're doing. C- committed to, to bearing witness to Jesus here in our city and outwards. That's to say nothing of our local ministry partners that help us do it indeed. Help us be the hands and feet of Jesus in practical, service-oriented, justice-oriented, compassion-oriented ways. Um, we have those as well. So, there you go. That's what we do. If we're witnesses, that involves now both word and deed proclamation. Then finally, last thing, briefly, briefly, what do we want? And that's where the last phrase comes in there at verse 12. It says, do all these things. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice that Peter just assumes if you're following Jesus, you will be spoken of as an evildoer. Um, get used to that idea. Get used to that idea. That's not a fun idea. But as we've said before, you, you can follow Jesus poorly and insincerely and do a lot of evil in Jesus' name, and we will be rightly critiqued and challenged for that. People can speak evil of us for legitimate reasons. But it is also possible to follow Jesus faithfully, to represent him clearly, and to be spoken of as an evildoer. (laughs) Just let that set in. Peter assumes it. Peter assumes it. When that happens, keep your conduct honorable, that, here it is, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? The desire that you and I should have growing within us the desire that, that these identities should birth out of us is the deep desire to see our neighbors glorify God the day God visits them. We should long to see them receive the love of God and love him in return. Here's our second thing. A lack of seriousness in evangelism or witnessing very likely reveals a deficient heart in this other area. First was that we might not love God as much as we think we do. The second is that we might not love people as much as we think we do. It's possible that when push comes to shove, we just don't care that much about those around us. 
We're, we're just comfortable and content in the idea that they might not experience forgiveness and eternal life and the deep abiding joy and hope and peace that comes with a life with Jesus and his kingdom. The people that ostensibly we love and we care for, and yes, we'd help them out if they were in a pinch. When push comes to shove, like, I just really don't care. I don't care if they're in the eternal family of God with me. That may not be you, or it might be. Genuine passion in witnessing, it will naturally flow from a passion. And we're getting back to C.S. Lewis now, a passion for our God and a passion for our neighbors. Do you really love God? Do you really love people? If that is the case, man, you know you're not content until you're sharing that. You're sharing that love. You're bringing others into it that they might experience it too. That's the kind of heart this is to produce, that that we might long to see our neighbors glorify God, love God, serve God, be blessed by God, receive all the joyous benefits of a life with God. So, to conclude, to conclude, the whole series here, The New Testament gives us an identity. If we're disciples of Jesus, he tells us we together are meant to be a family. We're meant to be a family. The kinds of relationships, the the kinds of metaphors that the New Testament writers use to describe us is chiefly brothers, sisters, mothers and fathers, parents and children. So that means we've got to be together. It means we've got to be together, that we can actually bear one another's burdens, that we can actually encourage one another, that we can actually carry one another through dark times, that we can actually do all the things, all those 60 one another's the New Testament captures that are so beautiful and incredible and lofty. We have to actually take the task seriously of just being together as a family. So there's a relational call. Second, learners. You know, we can get together and we can be miserable to one another, you know? Maybe you've been a part of churches like that. Maybe this church has been that experience for you. Like, it's just, this is terrible. I can't stand these people. The call alongside the call to become a family is to be learners, is to become more and more serious about our discipleship, to actually follow what Jesus commands as an expression of love to him, as an expression of love to our neighbors, to be maturing to not just stay content where we were, but to let the Spirit of God bring us somewhere new. And both of these things flow into this third identity as witnesses, that we are, we're not just together and we're not just maturing, but we are inviting people into what Jesus is doing here. That, that there is something he's doing here. And we think it's actually good news and important and a blessing to any who would come and receive it, that we'd become his witnesses. We're together, we're maturing, and we're inviting. I think all of these things have potentially, have potentially been sanded down a little bit over the last two years. And the call today is to pick them back up. Whatever that means for you, whatever that means for me, whatever that means for us together, is to say, yes, this is what we're called to. And if we've, if we've slipped and slided a bit away, we just confess that. We know that the Lord is gracious, and we ask for him to empower us uh, to, to move forward today. You know much about church bells? Um, church bells. 
ding, ding, ding. They were used as calls to worship as early as 400 AD. So they're not a biblical thing, but they're, a, they're an old thing. And they would be used to let the community know. Now, generally, lots of villages were kind of organized around church buildings. And the bell was used to let the community know that it was time to gather. Gather together to worship the Lord. They would also announce daily times of prayer in some traditions, mark special events like weddings. They'd also serve as a beautiful, peaceful reminder of God and his body to the entire community. Even the people that didn't want anything to do with the church. They'd hear the church bell. Inoffensive. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful sound. Peaceful sound. They'd go, oh, yeah, the people of God, the Christians, they're doing something over there. That's right. It would be a reminder whether the person hearing it wanted anything to do with the church or not that God was being worshipped. Perhaps for some, in moments of sadness or aloneness or desperation, it served as an invitation to come and to taste and to see if, in fact, the Lord is good. So this might be a little cheesy or, or whatever, but th- this image came to me like a month ago, a month and a half ago, and it's just stuck with me. I think it's time for us to start ringing our church bell. <laughs> yeah, hey, bell. I, I did it two, the last two weeks, and then, um, and then I forgot about it today. Um, so we'll, we'll develop our church bell ringing team here sooner or later. Um, we'll get lanyards and stuff. Um, but I think we should ring the bell. Yeah. I think we should ring the bell. <clears throat> Again, maybe this is cheesy, but, but I, I just think that would be a beautiful little kickoff to our, our Sunday morning liturgy, that it's a reminder to us of this call to gather together, to grow together, and to witness together. It's, and it's a subtle, peaceful reminder to those in the Irvington neighborhood here. I don't, someone should experiment one Sunday and go see how far that bell carries. I don't know. But at least to our immediate neighbors here, that you know what? This building right here, it's not a McMinimins. <laughs> And McMenamins is fine. But may this always be a church where Jesus is worshipped. This is not a McMenamins. This isn't a dead monument to a forgotten God. This is a living community of folks who've been saved and are being saved and will be saved by a God who's actually alive. Um, So so, so consider this part of our morning liturgy from here on out. 10 o'clock, we're going to ring the bell, uh, which means come to worship. Be here. Not that this is the only thing that matters. We've, I think we've talked at length about that enough. This is Sunday morning. is not our only or even in some ways our most important way of being together. But it's an important one. It's a call to come, to gather. And it's also a reminder to those around us. Jesus is king here. And he's alive. And the invitation is always open. Please come and see that this Lord, he is in fact good. Amen?